I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program in segments two and three is returning guest to the program, Mr. Carl Denninger. I'm going to chat with Carl about the state of the current economy and the state of the stock and real estate market. Hey, I'm making available for the very first time today my May special report. The May special report is titled How Evolving Money Affects Investing Markets. And in the report, I talk about how as currency evolves, investing climates change and how they are, from my perspective, very predictable. I think it's a report that's very appropriate and very applicable to where we find ourselves today. I'd love to send you a complimentary copy of the report. All you need to do is visit requestyourreport.com. Again, requestyourreport.com. Let me know where to mail the report, and I'll be very glad to send the report out to you along with some bonus information. You know, speaking of real estate, I believe there are some signs that Uh, the top in real estate will potentially be this year. And I'll tell you why I I say that. There was an article this past week uh, that talked about the fact that month over month, we saw a 1.2% drop in pending home sales. And year over year, pending home sales are down about 9%. Now, this decline in real estate activity is taking place prior to the full effect of the recent mortgage interest rate surge kicking in. There is a time lag between the time that someone applies for a mortgage and gets a rate lock to the time that they buy and close on a piece of real estate. So we haven't seen the full effects of the 30-year mortgage rate rising from under 3% to over 5% this year. Now, by stating that I believe the real estate market is close to a top, I believe I'm in good company. There was a Bloomberg article that talked about the fact that bond manager Mark Kiesel is calling for a top in real estate here as well. And Mr. Kiesel has a terrific track record. Now, Mr. Kiesel is the chief investment officer for global credit at Pacific Investment Management Company sometimes called PIMCO for short. And he called the top in real estate back in 2006. He sold in 2006 and he bought again in 2012 after real estate prices dropped by 30% or more, depending on what part of the country you're in. Kiesel now is stating that the time to sell is once again at hand. Here's a quote from Mr. Kiesel. He said, I can look at my long-term 25-year charts and they tell me when to buy and sell and they're flashing orange right now. I think, Mr. Kiesel said, we are now in the final innings. Now, when you look at the recent surge in real estate prices, I think Mr. Kiesel might be correct. According to the Case-Shiller Index, which is the most widely used index to track the prices of homes, We have seen home prices jump, you might say soar, 20% in the 12 months through February. Now that is a price surge that is certainly unsustainable. 
And now with a 30-year mortgage rate over 5% at a 12-year high, that will have to start, I believe, taking its toll. Now, a leading indicator in the real estate market would be home sales contracts. And home sales contracts fell for the fifth consecutive month in March as a result of rising interest rates. Now, that information comes from the National Association of Realtors last week. Now, Kiesel, as I said, has a really good track record. Back in 2006, he called housing the next NASDAQ bubble. And I'm going to talk more about NASDAQ here momentarily. Home prices peaked in 2006 before they collapsed, and that was the time of the financial crisis, which many of you listening to this experienced firsthand. Now, Mr. Kiesel suggested in 2012 that people jump back in. In fact, he wrote in a credit market note this, and I quote, For those of you renting or on the sidelines, I recommend you at least consider getting back in and buying a house. The future is hard to predict, but U.S. housing is healing, and it's probably close to a bottom. Kiesel bought a golf course home for $2.9 million at the time he wrote that memo. It's now valued at $5.5 million, according to Redfin. Now, there is some data to back up what Mr. Kiesel is saying. There was a 181% surge in foreclosures last month which are the highest levels of foreclosures since March of 2020. Chicago, New York, Los Angeles have led the pack. And part of this is due to the fact that the nationwide moratorium on foreclosures expired. And as I've said here on the program many times, a moratorium on loan payments doesn't make the loan go away. In many cases, it just has the borrower getting more deeply into debt. Well, we see foreclosures jump from March of 2021, just last, just last month or, or uh, in March of 2022, 181%, and up from February to March, 29%. Now, California is leading the way. Florida and Texas are second and third. But when you dig into this, it's just a matter of applying some common sense to where real estate will likely go from here. So, for example, in the San Diego market, just to give you an example, from February 2021 to February of 2022, housing prices jumped 29.1% year over year. Now, a lot of you are probably wondering, how does this compare to where real estate prices were in 2006, 2007? Well, I'd like to give you the Case-Shiller Home Price Index at the market peak in 2006 compared to now. Now, this index is just a number. At the peak of the housing bubble in 2006, the Case-Shiller Home Price Index for San Diego stood at about 250. It now stands at 400. So housing prices are 60% higher than they were at the time of the prior real estate bubble. Well, can we realistically expect that we will be getting a more favorable outcome? 
I often also like to point out that mortgage interest rates hit their low as the last housing bubble was building from 2002 to 2006 at about 5.5%. This time around, we saw mortgage interest rates drop to half that, 2.75%, and they haven't yet gotten back to the point that they were at the low point prior to the time that housing bubble, the housing bubble came unwound back in 2006. Now, this is true in just about every market in the United States. If you look at Los Angeles, the Case-Shiller jumped from 270 at the prior housing bubble peak to about 400 today. In Seattle, it's moved from 190 to about 380. It's about doubled. San Francisco from 220 to 360. Miami from 280 to 360. And Tampa from 240 to 340. So all these markets have seen better than 20 to, in some cases, more than 30% price jumps year over year. And that likely means that we're going to see a real estate top this year, in my view. Now, if you've been a longtime listener here to the program, you know that I called the market top back in December. I said I thought the top was in. At this point, it seems that that is the case. Now, all these markets that, that bubble really are related to the type of currency system that is in place at the time and how much currency has been created. I've explored this whole idea in my May special report, which is titled How Evolving, Mar how Evolving Money Affects Investing Markets. I'd love to send you a complimentary copy of the report. All you need to do is go to requestyourreport.com. Let me know where to mail you that report. I'll be glad to do that. Again, the May 2022 special report, How Evolving Money Affects, affects Investing Markets. And again, you can get that report by visiting requestyourreport.com. I'll be back after these words with my special guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tuberg, and joining me once again on today's program is returning guest Carl Denninger. Uh, Carl is a prolific commentator on, uh, on the healthcare industry, on, on politics, on the economy. Uh, Carl has a very unique background that I will share with you here. You can read his work at market-ticker.org, market-ticker.org, and on the page, on the, on the landing page, there's also a link that says click for what the media does not want published. Uh, he's got some uh, uh, alternative content there as well that I'll let him explain. But, Carl, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you for having me on, Dennis. So, Carl, let's jump in because as we were chatting before we started to record our conversation, I think you used the term that the uh, you know inflation is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Um, it, it seems to me that the, the, the Fed is taking – uh, action that is really more form than it is substance. What's your take? No, not for long. Uh, I mean, it's <laughs> they, they certainly are have been hoping since last summer that inflation would be, as Jerome Powell said at the time, transitory and mild. Of course, what they've gotten over the last six months has been anything but transitory and mild. And uh, this is showing up in places that that cannot be ignored and has has very little evidence that it's actually going to snap back the other direction. So 
Uh, I have I have long said that we lived we have lived in an extraordinary time since the 1980s, uh, a period of time when interest rates inexorably went from the upper right or the upper left of the page to the lower right. Okay, and that's been that's been the case for 40 years now. What this what this has made possible is all manner of distortion, and the reasons for this are are very complex and multifaceted. Uh, one of the things that has occurred is that it has made possible setting up companies that actually don't produce anything; they're cash furnace, and yet they they show great earnings and fantastic internals. And yet I can literally, in that environment, set up a company that does nothing but borrow money, burn some percentage of it. Uh, pay myself, pay pay a group of people to sit in a room and issue financial statements every quarter. And this will continue to work and show fabulous numbers right up until that trend runs out because I never pay the debt off. I just roll it over and finance it. And every time I do, it's cheaper. And therefore, the covering cost for however much money I had out originally is less. Therefore, I can take out more to continue to pay the salaries and I pay less in interest. And so, And I haven't actually manufactured a single thing Right, during this entire time. And, and this has been the world that every single investment professional alive today is operating in. So all the advice you're hearing from these people, I mean, there's a handful of, of folks that have, that have been in, you know, in the markets for more than 40 years, but you can count them on the fingers of your hands. Everybody else has lived, that's all they know. And if, if you believe that this can continue, when it obviously can't, you can't go below zero. Um, and now you have the the other problem, which is that we have avoided the inflationary impact of our economic policies because of the trade balance, because we shifted things offshore. We shifted textiles offshore originally. That was one of the first big ones that went. The entire textile industry in the United States was destroyed and shipped over to Vietnam and, and you know wherever else. Okay, Laos and all these other places. You look, you look at your clothing level you know, labels. You know, manufactured in Vietnam, manufactured here, and manufactured. None of it says United States. Then, then of course, the electronics and all other manner of mechanical things went to China along with other places. We moved all of our auto manufacturing, the vast majority of it to Mexico, and a lot of the, the parts sourcing coming from China on that as well. Uh, and all of this was done with these macroeconomics so-called experts who all claimed that the cheaper labor in places like Mexico, as soon as we did this, the labor costs would normalize with the United States you would create a huge consumer economy in Mexico that would be buying the cars and trucks that were assembled in Mexico because wages would go up to equalize with the United States. And as a result, this was going to be good for everybody because it would grossly expand the market. And at the same time, uh, you know, here, here we are. Well, that didn't happen. It didn't happen with cars. It didn't happen with electronics. It didn't happen with anything. What happened is that the governmental forms that have always been used to essentially treat human capital as slaves was maintained. The wages were continued to be, they continued to be suppressed. Environmental destruction became part and parcel of how you got cheaper products. Okay. Whether it be in Mexico and you just look at the, the sewage outflows just south of our border from Mexico compared to the same thing in San Diego where it has to be treated. 
And, and then, of course, you have all the stuff over in China for, to make one EV battery for one electric car. You have to dig up half a million pounds of earth, half a million. Now, that's just for one battery. Okay, and then, of course, you have to process everything, which takes all kinds of noxious chemicals and, and nasty processes that we won't allow to be done in the United States because the cost of treating that material so it doesn't destroy the environment is too great. China doesn't care. So this is what we've done. And people think this is about a petrodollar or, or some conspiracy theory. It's not. It's simply this. If I sell you something as a Chinese manufacturer or as any other manufacturer, it takes three months for that thing to be made, put on a boat, and shipped to the United States. During that period of time, I haven't been paid yet because the product isn't here. You want, as a supplier, you want to be paid in a stable currency. And if the most stable environment for value is U.S. dollars, that's what you're going to demand. And what that does is take the credit that is created from deficit spending in the United States federal government and sequesters it overseas. And as a result, you don't see the inflation. Well, when we turned around and sanctioned Russia and said, all your dollar assets belong to us. <laughs> and oh, by the way, we're going to name individual people. We'd done this with, you know, with Saddam's people in Syria and, you know, little, little companies that have little companies and little nations that have no international trade impact. All of a sudden we take one of the largest industrial producers of things like potash and other things that go into the, the products that we have to have, fertilizers, rare earths, the, the, the copper, all the, all the stuff that goes into things that we build. And we turned around and we upset that apple cart. And so now, if you're a producer, what, what do you want to be paid in? You want to be paid in your local currency. You won't be paid in dollars anymore. Otherwise, it might be stolen. Yeah, so Carl, so, let's jump in there because it seems to me, we, we talked about this on the program a couple of weeks ago, it seems to me that this is going to do nothing but accelerate inflation because all of these countries around the world that uh, now are, are bypassing dollars in international trade, uh, well, you know, they're not going to roll over their U.S. Treasury holdings. Well, they may or may not, but it doesn't matter whether they do. I mean, obviously, if, if they don't, then, yeah, then it, then it accelerates it further. But the, the important point that everybody has to take from this is that we essentially defrauded the American public by doing this and claiming we could issue this credit, that we could have the government – the Congress, and, and this is, folks, this is not the Federal Reserve. This is Congress. This is your congresspersons are the ones who did this, that they can spend money they didn't tax just because they want to. And every time they do that, every time there is a deficit at the federal level, it is directly inflationary somewhere. And what we have done is isolate the impact of that overseas through trade policy. That is now over, and it's not going to come back because we have now decided that we can deem that those funds that somebody is going to trade in to not be theirs. We essentially took property rights and turned them on their ear and said, no, if you do something, we, if your government does something we don't like, not you personally, but your government does something we don't like, we're going to confiscate your property. 
Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think when you when you look at what's happened historically, this is a line that hasn't even been crossed in in total wartime, and yet, uh, you know, it's it's really changed the dynamics of uh, of world economics. Uh, you know, just in the last couple months. Well, it, it, you know, it's a pure act of insanity when you think about what's really going on here over in Ukraine and, and Russia. Russia produces gas, which Europe became dependent on. Um, it was this was warned against. 20 years ago, don't do this. Okay. But in, but in the name of green energy and whatever have you, they did this. Okay. They shut down their own power plants. France has, has natural gas resources. All of Europe has coal resources. Germany has a crazy amount of coal and resource. That's, that's how they ran world war two for crying out loud. That Hitler used to use the, what's called the Fischer Trop process to produce synthetic fuel from coal, which is, I mean, we've known how to do this now for you know 70 years, but it, it's, it's not green enough. So we're going to, we're going to buy Russian gas. Okay. So you now have Ukraine and Russia. They're at war. They're trying to kill one another. Ukraine is where the pipes go through. So why is you if if Russia is Ukraine's mortal enemy? Tell me why Ukraine hasn't shut the valves on those pipes. It's a great point. That's a great question. I, I mean, come on, the, the pipes go right through their land, okay? And how is Putin getting the money to conduct the war? He's selling gas. Well, why would you give money to the guy who's trying to kill your people? Is that nuts? So. Carl, um, let, let's go back to the, the the economic part of this. We've got just a couple minutes left in this segment. Um, do you see then this this whole this whole Russia Ukraine situation will obviously you know accelerate inflation with a lot of the things that have happened with Russia now re- requiring rubles or gold from unfriendly countries with whom they trade? But my, my my question is, do you have a sense as to how much worse inflation gets, not only as a result of Fed policy and deficit spending, but also as a result of, you know, the geopolitical situation? Well, I don't think the geopolitical situation is driving the majority of it. I think it's 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 essentially that that has pointed out the the craziness of using dollars as an international exchange mechanism, which is which is it's all it's over. That's not coming back. We can't put that, you know, that that egg's broken. Uh, the additional problem is that the Federal Reserve has to step on this and step on it hard because it is not just inflation today. It is the expectations of the public. And when you look at the, the most recent GDP report, uh, when, I, when that first came out, I said, we, we have a serious problem here because the average consumer has lost 3% in real terms purchasing power, even though they saw raises. Well, that doesn't go on for very long before the people at the bottom end can't eat. And that generates civil unrest and ultimately very bad things. So they will stomp on this. People think that they won't because the market must be protected or wrong. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, My guest today is Mr. Carl Denninger. His blog can be found at market-ticker.org. That's market-ticker.org. And I'll return after these words with Mr. Carl Denninger. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm talking today with uh, Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. That's market-ticker.org. And then, Carl, let's just pick it up uh, where we kind of left off at the end of the last segment. 
Um, as inflation accelerates, I mean, uh, John Williams of, of Shadowstat says our current inflation rate's about 17%. If we use the uh, inflation calculation methodology that was used the last time we had inflation this high, and that's really, as you pointed out, that when interest rates started to fall, um, how high do you think it gets, and, and where would you say we are realistically today as far as inflation goes? Well, I disagree with Williams uh, in that he's he's been you know putting up numbers like that for the last uh, 15 years or so, and if that was the case, then the average price level would have uh, been up by a factor of about 300% by now, and that obviously hasn't happened. So, uh, you know, I mean, there's, <laughs> you, you can, you can take a, uh, something that looks awfully good in the, you know, in the, in the present tense, because it, it serves as confirmation bias. And when you run it backwards and you take a look at the, you know, the claims over the space of some period of time, you go, wait a minute, <laughs> there's, there's something wrong here. Uh, on the other hand, the CPI index that's produced is, is deliberately gamed. And transparently so. I mean, one of the biggest ones and the one that I've been screaming about for a couple of decades is owner's equivalent rent, which which is a cute way of hiding the impact of housing cost increases in homes that you own, something in other words, a house you buy, whether it's mortgaged or not. Uh, and, and essentially what it does is it depresses the price uh, intentionally as long as interest rates continue to go down. So for the last 30 to 40 years, uh, hasn't this been convenient? Because owner's equivalent rent is, of course, tied to what it would cost to borrow the money uh, if you were renting the house to somebody else. And, and uh, what happens when interest rates go up? <laughs> so OER is due to have a uh, rather nasty thing happen to it uh, somewhere in the future. The, the problem with inflation is is that once it gets ingrained into people's minds, it drives decisions. And when it is on the cost side of the equation, it's especially nasty because it takes a it takes just as long for it to go away as it does for it to start. So I track the PPI much more than the CPI because the PPI gives me about six months worth of lead time in terms of where where it's going to go on the CPI. And the PPI has been screaming that we're in trouble since last fall. Uh, and, and gee, here it is, right? <laughs> so, you know, there you go. But today, one of the biggest issues that we have, and it's going to be very difficult to solve uh, with with the political environment we have today that says you may not drill, you may not have oil, you may not have gas, uh, you may not have pipelines is that the price of diesel fuel has gone through the roof and absolutely everything in our economy gets moved in the last mile by truck. So every single thing you buy is going to get hit by this. And the only way to stop it is for that price to come down. And that means that the things that have been done by the current administration, uh, including shutting down the leasing on federal lands, Keystone, you know, everybody says, oh, that's just a drop in the bucket. Yes, it is a drop in the bucket. However, the basics of commodities are this. If I want to burn one million barrels of oil today, whatever I have to pay for the last one is what they all cost. And that's how commodities always work. It's always been that way and it will never be different. So we have to make a decision as a society. So... 
You, you, you mentioned, Carl, I want to go back because I made a note. You said something in the first segment that, you know, we've had 40 years of really declining interest rates, which has created an artificial, you know, environment. I think you used the term all manner of distortion. Let's expand on that a little bit and uh, talk about how that might relate presently to where stocks and real estate are. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's rather interesting with what you've seen over the last, you know, 30 or 40 years. When, when my parents bought their house, uh, it was right around 1960-ish, and it was, it was built. Uh, the lot and the house cost about $20,000. Now, interestingly enough, uh, of course, you know, 25 years, 30 years later, uh, that was worth a whole lot more, right? But was it really worth more in terms of hours of work? In other words, my father went to work every day and earned a paycheck. Well, if you price things in hours of work, did it take him more hours of work or less hours of work to earn the house, uh, you know, in, in uh, say, 1980 as it did in uh, 1960? Well, that's a good question. And that's how we really ought to take a look at, at things, because it's not how many dollars you have, it's what they buy. And when you can borrow at an ever cheaper price, what ends up happening is that I have a house. I'm incentivized to borrow against it, against the so-called increased price. I feel wealthy and I spend that money. But I'm really not because the cost of what I buy with the money goes up. And then on the back end, what happens is that the assessor comes along and says, oh, by the way, that $20,000 house worth a hundred grand. So your property taxes go up. And what I had, what I warned him when I was running my company was that although this looked really great on his point, you know, from his point of view at the time, uh, what he had to be very careful of is that between the taxes, the tax increases, that all of this alleged gain that he was getting was going to get swallowed over the next 10 or 15 years. And as a result, he really made nothing. And that ended up being exactly the case. So there's, there is a real problem here in that you have, you have this unnatural acceleration of so-called value. It's really price. It's not value. Um, and we're already seeing it crack in some places. Around where I live, uh, there's, there's a true craziness going on. All right? this, this is an area that does not support uh, 3,000 square foot houses that cost $750,000. It just doesn't. There, you don't have people that can make two hundred grand a year. Okay, just uh, the number of jobs that support that in this county is just, I mean, it's non-existent unless you happen to own a business, and that's that's not an extravagant mansion. You're talking about a, you know very nice sized place, or you know a two thousand square foot house that's three bedrooms, two baths for four hundred grand. Again, where are you going to get one hundred twenty five, hundred fifty grand worth of income to support that? Around here, there are very few jobs that provide that. So the problem is, is that eventually this rolls over. People, you know, coming from New York, they buy these places, they pay cash, everything looks fine, um, except the next buyer has to show up. And now we have, just in this immediate area, a builder who has new construction that has gone up on the market, 309 for 2,100 square feet, uh, and, a, and there's a guy with a for sale sign up on his yard uh, about a quarter of a mile down the road from me that thinks he's going to get 420 for the same space. Not going to happen. 
So, Carl, it seems like we're we're starting to see the the, the cracks in the foundation of the real estate market. To use that um, uh, analogy, I mean, foreclosures are now accelerating. Uh, we've seen interest rates spike from under three percent on a thirty-year mortgage to to over five. And of course, there's a bit of a time lag from the time interest rates go up until the time we see it really affect the real estate market. I mean, are, are, is it your view that we're going to see real estate and maybe stocks roll over this year? Yeah, I, I think they're both done. And and the the longer the the biggest problem for people in the equity market is that everybody says, well, it comes back, and you know, and therefore just sit on it. Well, it's true; it it eventually always does. The problem is the word eventually. Okay, if you take a look at what happened to equities in the 1960s and the 1970s, you sat on that for 20, 25 years. That for most people is beyond the horizon which they're going to need the funds. Okay, and the same thing happened in the 1930s. So anybody who thinks this can't happen again is wrong. It can happen again. And the fact that we've had these these periods of time where the recovery has been, you know, two or three years, like we had with the tech crash and then we had after the housing bubble blew up. Um, has, and, and again, we have no institutional memory, nor anybody in the advisory business that was around the last time it took 20 years for you to get back to where you were. Um, I, I have a strong suspicion we're going to trade – S&P 1576 within the next 12 to 24 months. And it, and I would I will be sh- absolutely stunned if all of the pandemic acceleration in housing prices does not come back out. So you're talking uh you know year over year in, in some of the major markets we've got housing prices up 20 to 30%. So you're talking, you know, maybe 40% on on real estate and 60% on stocks if if I'm doing the math uh, in my head here correctly. Or worse, that's an optimistic view. So, Carl, we've got uh, again just a few minutes left in this segment. So let's talk about if this starts to unravel. Um, the Fed in the past, in 2018, when the market started to get jittery, they went right back to more QE, creating more currency. Aren't they going to try to do the same thing again? And in your view, will it work? They can't do it again because it will immediately reflect back into inflation. The ability to sequester that offshore is gone. That's the problem. That's what people are not taking into account. Yes, the Fed would love to do that if they could. The problem is you don't have 10% inflation if they do that. You have 30% inflation if they do that. And, and then what, how do you feed people when they can't heat their house? You take a look at what's going on with heating oil. I mean, heating oil is number two diesel. Okay, so if you look at the diesel price at the pump and you take the taxes out, the road tax, which is typically about 50 cents a gallon, you take that out, that's heating oil. It's the same physical stuff. It's just dyed red because you didn't pay the road tax on it. You take a look at the people that are still using heating oil in the Northeast and tell me what they're going to do next winter. Yeah, and, and of course, it's affecting uh, agricultural commodities. I'm seeing $12 wheat and $8 corn, uh, and you know that's likely going to accelerate. Well, yeah, I mean, does anybody does anybody pay attention to the fact that the, that the things that go into fertilizer are number one, natural gas, the nitrogen. Okay, that's because you have to fix the nitrogen in order for it to be absorbed into the soil, and then the second thing that's necessary is potash. And where is it? And one of the major, the two major places where that comes from is Ukraine and Russia, both of which are shut down right now. Yeah. 
Well, my guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. On the landing page of the website, there's a link. Click for what the media does not want published. Uh, there's some alternative content that Carl publishes there. I would encourage you to check it out. Carl, always appreciate your perspective and always enjoy having you on the program. I always get terrific feedback, so thanks for joining us today. Anytime. Thank you very much. We will return after these words. This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I want to say a special thank you to my special guest, Mr. Carl Denninger, for joining us on today's program. If you're just tuning in, I am offering today for the first time our May 2022 special report. It is titled, How Evolving Money Affects Investing Markets. It's a topic that I have wanted to explore for quite some time. We talk about the link between economic seasons and evolving currency and how different investment markets might perform. I think the report's especially timely for where we find ourselves today. I'd be very glad to send you a complimentary copy of the report. All you need to do is visit the website, requestyourreport.com. The website, again, is requestyourreport.com. Now, that said, I want to give you just a little bit about what we talk about in this report. There's been many times in history, there's been several other times in U.S. history when the currency supply has been expanded, when currency has been created. The first time this happened was after the War of 1812. In 1817, in the month of January, the Second National Bank of the United States opened and the bank began to issue paper notes that could be redeemed for precious metals. Now, as typically happens, the bank issued more paper currency than it had precious metals to back, which resulted in a large increase in the currency supply. Now, this created a price bubble in real estate. It created a price bubble in stocks. Real estate sales in 1836 were 10 times greater than they, than they were in 1830. That is a bubble. But my point here is there was still a link between the dollar and gold. This cycle repeated itself at the time of the Civil War when President Lincoln and Congress changed the banking rules to allow U.S. dollars to be backed by gold, silver, and U.S. government debt. There was still a link to gold and silver, but the link was weakened. The currency supply expanded, and after the war, bubbles formed in real estate and stocks. Railroad stocks were the very hot stock of the early 1870s. Then, of course, the bubble collapsed. The Federal Reserve, the nation's third central bank, and the one we talk about here on the program, was founded in 1913. And the first thing the Federal Reserve did was reduce the backing of the dollar by gold from 100% backed by gold to only 40% backed by gold. Well, that created a price bubble in stocks and real estate. It was a period of time that we now refer to as the Roaring Twenties. Florida real estate went nuts. It collapsed, and we all know what happened to the stock market in 1929. The real estate and stock bubble unwound. Now, in each of these U.S.-based currency creation circumstances, in each of these instances, 
we had easy money currency creation that allowed for the building of debt-fueled bubbles, and these debt-fueled bubbles eventually collapsed. Now, in each of these examples, it's important to point out that the U.S. dollar was still linked to gold to some extent. Now, that brings us to where we now find ourselves. There has been no link between the U.S. dollar and the precious metal since 1971. If you've listened to the program here for any length of time, you know that. That means the U.S. dollar has been a full fiat currency for more than 50 years, and that has allowed debt levels in the private and public sector to soar. And given that there's been no link between the U.S. dollar and gold for a time frame of more than five decades, it has dramatically altered our perspective on the current economic and investing environment. Carl Denninger said today that we have all manner of distortion. I thought that was a very accurate way to describe where we now find ourselves. Now, let me illustrate for you this distortion. If we look at the stock market peak, the S&P 500 peak in 2007, it peaked at about 1560. Today, about the time I wrote this report anyway, uh, the S&P 500 was between 42 and 4300. So by all accounts, if you take the percentage gain from 1560 to north of 4200, you have a gain of 270%. But the question is, and the all-important question is, did the stock market really rally that much? Well, if we price stocks in gold, we get a clearer view. If I take the market peak in 2007 of 1560 and I divide it by the price of gold per ounce, it took about 2.2 ounce, 2 ounces of gold to buy the S&P 500. Gold was $700 an ounce. If I take 1560 and divide by 700, I get 2.2. If we fast forward today and we go through the same math exercise, you can buy the S&P 500 at today's values that are nominally 270% higher than at the prior market peak in 2007, but you find that it takes less gold to buy the stock market. We get a number of just under 2.2. So what this means is, in nominal terms, the stock market went higher, but in real terms, it did not. Now, bubbles, I believe, have now inflated to levels that they couldn't have inflated to in the prior three circumstances because there was still a link between the dollar and gold. Now, over the past 15 years, the response of the Fed to really any economic issue has been to create currency, and now we see that that response has led to the inflation that we are now seeing. History teaches us that when eliminating the link between a paper currency and a precious metal, you can get a highly inflationary outcome when measured in terms of the paper currency. However, if you measure it in metals, the outcome will have to be deflationary. In Weimar, Germany, during the hyperinflation, there was a rapid nominal increase in prices when you measured prices in terms of German marks, but measured in terms of gold, there was deflation as you would gain 300% in purchasing power as the hyperinflation raged. This is the topic of the May special report, How Evolving Money Affects fi Investing Markets. How Evolving Money Affects Investing Markets. 
I'd love to send you a complimentary copy. All you need to do is visit requestyourreport.com. The website, again, requestyourreport.com, and I'd be very glad to send you a copy along with some bonus information. And if you're not visiting the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, you can check out the podcast as well as the weekly headline roundup webinar there. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.